July 26, 2018, in Ljubljana, Slovenia, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 6, Chapter 3. Yamaraja instructs his messengers, text 19. It's a very, very famous verse. Dharmam tu sakshad bhagavat pranitam Navai vidurishayo na pideva Nasida mukya asura manusha Kutonu vidyadara charandaya Dharmam Real religious principles or bona fide laws of religion. Two, but, sakshat, directly, bhagavat, by the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Pranitam, enacted, na, not, vai, indeed, vidahu, they know, Rishayaha, the great rishis such as Brigu. Na, not, Api, also, Devaha, the demigods. Na, nor, Siddha Mukyaha, the chief leaders of Siddhaloka. Asuraha, the demons. Manushyaha, the inhabitants of Burloka, the human beings. Kutaha, where, knew, indeed, Vijadara, the lesser demigods known as Vijadaras. Charana, the residents of the planets, where people are by nature great musicians and singers. Adhyaha, and so on. Translation by Srila Prabhupada. Real religious principles are enacted by the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Although fully situated in the mode of goodness, even the great rishis who occupy the topmost planets cannot ascertain the real religious principles, nor can the demigods or the leaders of Siddhaloka, to say nothing of the asuras, ordinary human beings, vidyadaras and chadanas. Srila Prabhupada's purport. When challenged by the Vishnu Dutas, to describe the principles of religion, the Yamaduta said, Veda Pranihito Dharmaha. The religious principles are the principles enacted in the Vedic literature. They did not know, however, that the Vedic literature contains ritualistic ceremonies that are not transcendental, but are meant to keep peace and order among materialistic persons in the material world. Real religious principles are nishtrigunya, above the three modes of material nature, or transcendental. The Yamadutas did not know these transcendental religious principles, and therefore when prevented from arresting a jamula, they were surprised. Materialistic persons who attach all their faith to the Vedic rituals are described in Bhagavad Gita 2.42, wherein Krishna says, Veda vata rata partananyad asati vadinaha. The supposed followers of the Vedas say that there is nothing beyond the Vedic ceremonies. Indeed, there is a group of men in India who are very fond of the Vedic rituals, not understanding the meaning of these rituals, which are intended to elevate one gradually 
the transcendental platform of knowing Krishna, Vedascha Savam Ahameva Vejaha. Those who do not know this principle, but who simply attach their faith to the Vedic rituals, are called Veda Vata Rataha. Herein it is stated that the real religious principle is that which is given by the Supreme Personality of Godhead. That principle is stated in Bhagavad Gita, Sarvadharman Prichaja Mamekam Sharanam Vraja. One should give up all other duties and surrender unto the lotus feet of Krishna. That is the real religious principle everyone should follow. Even though one follows Vedic scriptures, one may not know this transcendental principle, for it is not known to everyone. To say nothing of human beings, even the demigods in the higher planetary systems are unaware of it. This transcendental religious principle must be understood from the Supreme Personality of Godhead directly or from his special representative as stated in the next verses. Dharmam tu sakshad bhagavat pranitam navai vidur rishayo na pidevaha na siddha mukya asura manusya kutonu vidyadara charanadaya. Real religious principles are enacted by the Supreme Personality of Godhead, although fully situated in the mode of goodness. Even the great rishis who occupy the topmost planets cannot ascertain the real religious principles, nor can the demigods or the leaders of Siddhaloka to say nothing of the asuras, ordinary human beings, vidyadaras, and chadanas. So we are born in this world, and we don't really know how we got here, or where we came from, or what the world is about, or what we're supposed to do. Uh, we're born into ignorance and bewilderment. Now, if one suddenly finds one place, oneself in a strange place, one needs to know what are the rules of that place. How does it work? What's the purpose of that place? Isn't that a fact? Right? So I'm constantly traveling, and whenever I go to a place I haven't been before, I have to find where's this, where's that, how do I get water, how do I get this, where do I wash my clothes? And you also want to know what the place is for, right? Some places are for government, some places are for study, some places are for recreation. What is the place for? Uh, We talk about dharma. This whole section of the Bhagavatam is about what is dharma. Dharma, uh, here Prabhupada's translating as bona fide laws of religion, But many times he translates dharma, it's a very difficult word, as the essence of something, like the dharma of sugar is to be sweet, the dharma of salty is to be salty, right? Uh, Like Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its salty quality, what is the point? So dharma means the essence of things, uh, that which gives something its identity, uh, that which it is. I mean, one can say dharma is right action, but right action, what does it mean, right? It means in accord with the identity of a thing. So I often give the example that, you know, you walk through doors, you don't walk through walls. Because they have different identities. The wall is meant to be supportive and the door is meant to allow you to go from one place to another. So as long as your actions are in harmony with the identity of something, and then you're happy. And as soon as our actions are not in harmony with the identity of something, then we become unhappy. Is this correct or not? It's a very simple principle. 
What is something? What is it for? What is its function? How does it exist? So we need to know what is our dharma and what is the dharma of reality. Otherwise, we are constantly walking into walls. And that is the situation of most of the living entities within this cosmos. They don't clearly understand what is their nature, nor do they understand the nature of reality, and therefore they are suffering. There are many causes explained for suffering. We can talk about how suffering is due to desires. But really what we mean is suffering is due to desires that are not in accord with reality. If I desire to be that which I am not, or I desire to use something for a purpose for which it is not intended, if I have a desire that is not in accord with reality, then I will suffer. Like if I say, well, instead of speaking into this microphone, I desire to eat the microphone, then I will suffer. I mean, there's somebody in the Guinness Book of World Records who ate an airplane little by little by little. But I can't imagine that he got a lot of nourishment or strength from eating that airplane. In fact, I would imagine that he became rather ill. So how do we know what is dharma? Here, Yamaraja, who's also called Dharmaraja, he's the personality of dharma, he is saying that generally nobody can figure it out. And he's giving a list of all of these beings that one would think could figure it out. The devas, the administrative celestial beings within the universe. The siddhamukya, the chief, mukya means face or chief, the chief of people who've attained siddha or perfection. So these are those who, they have mystic powers. They can fly, they can uh, change their form, they can take something from a distant place the chief of those with all powers, uh, the asuras, the uh, evil beings in the universe, manusya, that's us, the human beings, the vijidharas, vijidharas are also higher entities, uh, charana, those who are expert in the arts and the skills and the crafts within the universe. None of them uh, can understand. He says, and he was telling his messengers who brought up this topic in the first place, Uh, It's not surprising that you cannot understand. Again, this conversation comes because the Yamadutas, the uh, messengers of Yamaraj, wanted to take for punishment the subtle body of Ajamil when he was dying because he had lived his life mostly as a criminal. And then at the end of his life, he chanted Narayana and the Vishnudutas came, the servants of Vishnu and said no you can't take him away for punishment although he was a criminal for the majority of his life at the very last moment he was absorbed in the holy name of the Lord and therefore his criminality is no longer considered and they had a discussion between them what is Dharma that was the essence of the discussion what is right what is wrong what is the essence of truth? And of course, the Vishnu Judas being more powerful, they were able to stop 
the Yamadudas. And the Yamadudas are coming to their master and they've asked him, who is the supreme? Who runs this place? Who are his messengers? And what is Dharma? So having answered who is the supreme and who are his messengers, now he's answering, what is Dharma? And he says, Dharma is given by the supreme. Well, that makes a lot of sense. The person who manufactures a microphone knows how to use the microphone. What is it? What is it best used for? How to deal with it? This is just common, logical sense. If you want to know the identity and the essence of something and how to deal with it, you go to its source. Sometimes we may get some piece of equipment there where we don't, it doesn't come with the manual, right? And we don't know how to use it. I've had many times an experience where I was using something and someone else came along, oh, did you know it could do this? You know, if you push this button, it can do this. If you put this, oh, I didn't know it had that capability. Yes, everybody's had this experience. Oh, it can do all these things I didn't know it could do. Now, this is wonderful. I wish I had known about this, well, you know, a year ago. Now, my life is so much easier now that I know how to work it. So first we're going to talk about what dharma is not and how it cannot be found, and then we'll discuss what it is. So here, Srila Prabhupada is making very clear that dharma is not religious ritual. Particularly religious ritual for trying to adjust material nature to be happy. So materialistic people try to adjust material nature to be happy without reference to any religion. Right? If I can just eat the right food and wear the right cosmetics and the right clothes and get the right job and get the right amount of money and have the right friends, and then I can be happy in the world. Correct? And this is how we're taught in modern society. Get a good education, get a good job, make a lot of money, have the right friends, right? make your body beautiful, and fit and healthy, get the right romantic partner, get the right house, do some good for the world, be nice to people, and then you will be happy. Isn't that what we were all told? Growing up, that's the media, the TV, the movies, the books, the commercials, the schools. But anybody with a little sense can look at it and see that doesn't really work. And it just takes about five or ten minutes of thinking about it to say there's a lot of people who've done all those things who are not happy. And even the people who've done those things and are happy, they still get old and die and lose everything. And they're in constant fear that they're going to lose everything because anything that we have in this world through those means can be taken away about that fast without any warning whatsoever. Isn't that true? Everything. Your house, your family. There was that tsunami in Indonesia some years ago, you know. Some fishermen's out in a boat. You know, when you're out in a boat, a tsunami is not very noticeable. It's just your boat goes... You know, and you come back to shore, people came back to shore, their mother, their father, their aunts, their uncles, their wife, their, you know, seven children, were all gone. 
their home, everything in a moment. Or just a fire. Or a bad investment on the stock market. Anything. And it's all gone. So this way of trying to reduce misery and be happy, it's full of anxiety. One is always in anxiety. When will I lose everything? How will I lose everything? And even if you get everything that's advertised, you still may not be happy. Isn't that a fact? I mean, I I remember when I was 13, I was babysitting some children, so they were already asleep. And I was thinking, what is the purpose of life? Well, the purpose of life is to be happy, I decided. And so I wondered, am I happy? So I thought, am I happy? Have I achieved the purpose of life? So I made a list of everything I had. You know, I have a nice family. We have enough money. I get good grades in school. I have nice friends. I made a list. And I looked at the list and I said, I guess I must be happy. You know, you look at the list, you say, even you get everything. And I said, is is this all there is? Especially people who are very rich, very famous, they say, is that all there is? So then people, uh, a little higher grade people, they try another way. They say, well, God's made the world. And if I just please him, then I'm going to be happy. Rather than just trying to be happy through a good education and a good job and working hard, I'll try to do it through religion. So that's definitely a higher level of, of, of thought. It may bring one eventually to the real thing. And so whatever the name of the religion is, it isn't very important what you call it. Actually, I mean, I know people have wars about this kind of thing. Are you a Shuni Muslim or a Shiite Muslim? You know, Are you a Catholic or a Protestant? And they're literally killing each other over this, torturing each other. You know, nowadays we talk about Islamic terrorists. It wasn't very long ago that there were Christian terrorists. Oh, you're Protestant? We'll torture you until you become Catholic. Yes? This was going on. The Europeans went to the Western Hemisphere and... uh, said to the native people, if you don't become Christian, we'll torture you. And they would torture them. And then they would kill them anyway and take all their gold. So, But these things actually are not very important. Whether your rituals are Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Shuni Muslim or this, it doesn't matter, or this kind of Hindu or that kind of Hindu. All of these religious rituals done for the purpose of trying to get from, the, from God material enjoyment are still not dharma. First of all, they're within the realm of selfishness. Second of all, they're within the realm of identifying with this body and this world, neither of which is our real dharma. Third of all, they're not the actual relationship we have with the divine. So on the basis of how I identify myself, how I identify my source, how I identify my needs, it's all false. 
Now, that's not to say that religious rituals should be discouraged. In fact, for people in general, it should be encouraged. As Prabhupada said, they're meant to keep peace and order among materialistic people. So if you go to people in general and say, you know, the rituals of your religion are not the essence of life, they'll say, oh, great, I'll just live like an animal. So one has to be very, 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 very careful not to, in trying to push people up, have them go down. If someone's not ready to go up, encourage them in their position rather than having them fall down. Is that clear to everybody? I actually had this understanding once. I was talking to somebody on this very point about what is higher than religious rituals. And I could understand that I was just about to convince them. And I also understood that if I were to convince them, they would give up trying to be religious completely. So I immediately stopped. Better you have some some connection with the divine. Then higher than that, higher than people who approach the divine, you know, please give me money, please help me pass my exams, please cure my uncle of cancer, please send me a nice husband. Higher than that are the people who want liberation from illusion. Please let me just uh, become one with the light or lose my material identity in some way and stop suffering. Let me get out of all these material desires that entangle me. But that is not the highest dharma because it is still self-centered. It is still about what do I want for me to be happy? And therefore, dharma is very difficult to understand because real dharma gives up completely a me-centric or a self-centric view. Now, one could say, well, in liberation, I lose myself, so how is it me-centric? But it is me-centric because it is still thinking I want to get free of suffering and illusion. Whether I want to get free of suffering and illusion by losing my I completely, by losing my sense of self completely, or by identifying myself with the divine, it is still looking for my own interest. And therefore, uh, the understanding is many people who achieve even that kind of liberation say, you know what? Compassion is higher. Compassion is higher. And therefore, many persons even who achieve liberation choose to incarnate again and again as uh, an expression of compassion. Isn't that a fact? Yes? We cannot find dharma here, as Prabhupada is saying, through the mode of goodness even. So looking just briefly, uh, we looked at just vikarmis, karmis, and jnanis, people who are uh, not striving by any religion to become happy, people who are trying to become happy by religion, people who are trying to become happy uh, through salvation. We can also look at this through the modes of nature. You know, in Tamagun, one tries to become happy uh, by whatever is easiest. If it's easiest to be kind, they'll be kind. If it's easiest to be mean, they'll be mean. You know, fast food. (laughs) Just whatever will satisfy me immediately. 
then and those people cannot understand what is the essence of life. Then in the mode of passion in Rajagun is the main piety of human society and in the mode of goodness is the search for salvation. So we can look at this in terms of vikarma, karma, and gyan, and we can look at it in terms of tamagun, rajagun, and sattvagun. And here we can understand why even in sattvagun one cannot understand dharma, because in sattvagun one simply wants to be in balance, in harmony. One wants to be peaceful, one wants to be merciful, forgiving, uh, for that feeling of balance and equilibrium within and ultimately for liberation. But as we mentioned, even people who achieve that understand that what is higher than that is compassion. Compassion speaks of love. It speaks of connection with other living beings in a way that is not self-centered, in a way that is other-centered. Where I care about others for the sake of the others without looking for anything for myself. So, I don't usually do this, but it's such a, it's so appropriate. So somebody told me this great joke the other day that really fits here. That they said, we are here to help others. I don't know what the others are here for. (laughs) But anyway, higher than salvation is when I care about someone else for their sake. Where I feel happy at their happiness. Genuinely feel happy. I don't feel happy because helping them has made me feel balanced inside. That's sattvagun. I don't feel happy because helping them has given me the pride of being a good person and the praise of others, which is rajagun. I don't feel happy because I think by helping them maybe I'll get something in return, which is either rajagun or tamagun. I'll get some advantage. But I'm simply happy at their happiness. That means I have a sense of connection with them. I have a sense of oneness with them. This is we call chinchabeta-beta-tattva. I'm one with you. Therefore, your happiness is my happiness. But yet I am different from you because I can be the agent of your happiness. That is the highest expression of dharma. That is the definition, according to Krishna Das Kaviraj, of love. Then what is the highest expression of that love? The highest expression of that love, Sakshat Bhagavat, is when we express that love in relationship to our source, to Sri Krishna, the ultimate divine. Now, from an ontological perspective, one can say that such an expression doesn't make sense. Om Purnam Adha Purnam Idam Purnat Purnadu Jachache Purnasya Purnam Adaya Purnam Eva Vasishise. The divine is already complete. How can I express love for the divine? How can I be giving happiness to the divine? The divine is the source of all happiness. I am just a spark. Right? I'm just a little spark. How am I, a little spark of divinity, going to be the agent of happiness for the whole divine? I can see how I might be the 
agent of happiness for another spark, but how could I be that agent of happiness for the whole? And here we come into what we call rasa. And this platform of rasa is what makes ultimate dharma so difficult to understand. Rasa is not on a platform that one can understand just by logic. So, one of my godbrothers, the father of my son's wife, was telling me how when one of his children was very young, the young child brought him a stick. Just a stick. He just picked the stick up from the grass and brought it to his father. And the father said he was feeling so much love at being given an ordinary stick from his child. The stick had no purpose, it had no value, but it was given with affection. The father didn't need it. And this is the essence of rasa. We can make the supreme whole, our source, Krishna, happy. Pacham pushpam pulam toyam yome bhakti prayatati. Tadaham bhakti paritam ashnami prayat atmana. By giving him a little water with affection. Does Krishna need water? He's the source of water. He is water. And how much water are we going to give him? You know, on our altar we have a little cup. Sometimes people on their altar, they have very small murtis and they have very small cups. You've seen very, very small cups. They're only like this big. I visited one person's house. Their cups were so small that you could put in literally one drop of water. But if I give one drop of water to Krishna with affection, he becomes happy. I become the agent of his happiness because of rasa, because of taste, because of relationship. Not because ontologically I have some capability of doing that. Because the essence of all existence is actually this reciprocal relationship of love. That is the ultimate dharma. Like when Jesus was asked, what's the ultimate He said, to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And the second, which is like the first, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so many, uh, before Jesus also, great Jewish scholars said the same thing. What is the essence? Prabhupada's saying here, the essence is surrender. That is the essential principle. But surrender how? Not surrender on a battlefield. When Krishna is giving this verse to Arjuna, give up all other conceptions of dharma. Give up any conception of dharma based on I'm a man, I'm a woman. I work in the government. I work in agriculture. I'm a painter. I'm a whatever. Give up all these conceptions of dharma and just surrender. He wasn't talking about a battlefield kind of surrender. 
He was talking about the kind of surrender that a wife and husband do to each other, that parents and children do to each other, that friends and friends do to each other. It's a different kind of surrender. And we know that because Krishna is saying to Arjuna at the same time, you are my dear friend. When you ask a dear friend, Bhaktosime, Sakacheti, when you ask a dear friend, please surrender, you're not asking them like you're the general in an army. When you ask a friend to surrender to you, what you're saying, you know, I have something great planned for today. Just, just come on. You'll like it. It's that kind of surrender. So that is the essence of Dharma. It is eternal. It has nothing to do with our changing bodies and lives. It has nothing to do with our current false identity. And it is in one sense a platform of desirelessness because there's no selfish desire involved in all at all. There's a desire to please the divine. There's a desire for the happiness of the divine. But there's no selfish desire. So one can say it is beyond desires. One could also say it is a desire. Huh? One can also say, depending on how one wants to look at it. And this ultimate understanding of Dharma can only come from the source himself. We can understand it to some extent through logic and reason or even through sattvagun, through meditation. But ultimately, we can only understand it as one can understand the identity of purpose of anything from the source of that anything. So whatever we do that aims in that direction will make us happy. And whatever we do that goes away from that direction will not give us the happiness that we seek. We seek a happiness that is expensive, that is eternal, uh, that is variegated, that is dynamic, and that is only found in this reciprocation. Because when we, the little spark, the jiva, the atma, when we aim to be the agent of happiness for the divine, we also feel that Sri Krishna, the ultimate divine, his understanding of dharma is to be the agent of happiness for us. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions, chastisements, corrections. Yes. Do we have a working microphone today? <coughs> we, uh, we are uh, part and thank you for beautiful lecture. I mean for useful, not beautiful. Um, and beautiful also. I mean, uh, um, I haven't been on the whole lecture, but the part I've uh, Thank heard. You. Well, it's a, it's a particularly beautiful verse. So. Okay, I've missed the verse. Uh, <coughs> we are part and parcel of Krishna, so we are also ultimately a spirit soul satisfied by this rasa loving reciprocation. Correct. Uh, so uh, we, in order to be completely satisfied, it this uh, reciprocation. The microphone is funny. Condition 
Yeah. No, you can ask. I'll repeat it into this microphone. Yes. Yes. Let me repeat this because I have to repeat it, otherwise I may miss something. So you're saying that the condition is that we give, we're giving love to Krishna in rasa, and that has to be selfless. Yes. The same thing with other jivas. Because we're not only giving to Krishna, we're also giving to other jivas. Okay, go on. You're saying there's a paradox because we're serving jivas in order to get points to get liberated or something. But we should also serve jivas independently. Where does it say we should serve jivas independently? So you're saying, can we give love to a jiva directly or does it always have to go through Krishna? Is that what you're asking? Did I get it? Okay. We can only enjoy through Krishna. We cannot enjoy independently. We can only be happy when we're connected with the divine. We cannot be happy when we're disconnected. So if I'm going to give love to another jiva, the only way I can give love to another jiva is through a connection with the source. I, I give a very simple example of this. I, I, I think this, if it doesn't help you, then I'll think of something else. But, you know, sometimes I may be talking to you, but actually I'm trying to impress you. You were talking about getting points. We'll deal with points in a minute. So I might be talking to you, but actually I want to impress you. So we deal with other jivas to please Krishna, not to please them directly. First of all, you cannot please other jivas directly all the time. That's, I'm sure you've tried. And you see that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Well, I wouldn't say never works. Sometimes I'm able to please other jivas temporarily to some extent. So it works to some extent for a while. But even the same behavior at different times may please or displease the same person. Right? If I call my friend on the phone at 9 in the morning, they may be pleased, but if I call them at 1 in the morning, they may be displeased. Or even, you know, if I, I give the example all the time, you know, the husband comes home and his wife's made lasagna and he says, oh, thank you, my favorite. And the next day again she makes lasagna and he said, why are you making it two days in a row? So, you know, the very behavior which pleases somebody at one point doesn't please somebody at another point. And pleasing another jiva directly you know, we can never please them completely. We don't have the capacity. 
it's like, you know, my, my phone battery cannot run all the lights in the room. It just doesn't have the capacity. But if I'm pleasing another jiva to please Krishna, really I'm only trying to please Krishna. And it pleases Krishna if I'm kind to everybody. He doesn't like it if we're selfish and nasty and cruel. He likes it when we're kind and compassionate. And therefore, I'm kind and compassionate to make him happy. But that also gives me love for the other jivas. I mean, we have so many examples of of songs and prayers of great uh, acharyas where they're expressing love for another jiva. The one that is the most dramatic, I think, is Sri Rupa Manjari Pada. It's a very, very dramatic prayer of love for another jiva. So when we try to make other jivas happy to please Krishna, we end up feeling tremendous love for all living beings. I mean, I remember uh, when I was meeting with Srila Prabhupada in 1976, and my oldest son was uh, like one and a half years old. He was sitting on my lap. And Prabhupada looked and he said, just like this mother is loving her son without any expectation of return, in that way one should love Krishna. And my father said, will loving her son help her to love Krishna? And Prabhupada said, no, but loving Krishna will help her to love her son. So there, there is that. And I just want to deal with the idea of getting points. So there is a very famous book about relationships between men and women in this world. And in this book, very, very famous, bestseller. I'm sure some of you have read it. And in this book, he talks about getting points. So how does the woman get points with the man and how does the man get points with the woman? But the problem with getting points is it becomes a mercantile exchange. You understand? I mean, it's nice to know how men and women think. and Of course, those things are not ever absolutely true about all men and all women. But it shouldn't be just a matter of points. You know, if I'm saying, okay, all right, so I've done this and this and this to make you happy, so now I've got 30 points saved up with you, right? And there was another very famous author. I haven't read his book, but I've heard from a number of people. You know, make sure you fill up other people's emotional bank account because that way they'll be happy with you. So the idea of getting points generally is if I score enough points with somebody, they'll give me what I want. They'll treat me the way I want. So we're not trying... If we are trying to get points with Krishna so that we'll either be happy in the world or get liberation, then we're haunted by the witches of Bukti and Mukti. We're back down in the modes. If we're serving the divine to be happy in this world, then we're just a pious person, or you could say we're in karma, or you could say we're in rajagun. If we're serving the divine, thinking that way, I'll become enlightened, I'll become liberated, I'll become one with the divine, or I'll become nothing, or some whatever our concept of liberation is, uh, then we're in gyan, or we're in sattvagun. But it's still me-centric. So, although it is true that when you please Krishna, you are accumulating some sort of pious bhakti credit. That is true. The Shastra explains things like that. You know, it's like putting money into a bank account that eventually it fructifies. Or the analogies given, you know, you, you have a little plant and you fertilize it and you put water on it and eventually it has a fruit. 
So these analogies are given. It is, it is true. At the same time, the purpose is not like that. The purpose is to please Krishna, just to please Krishna. Whether I'm bringing up my own account or getting points or is, is the actual love doesn't think like that at all. Uh, I mean, I'm just thinking, uh, I got this email yesterday from this a husband who uh, he had an affair two years ago and from having an affair he started beating his wife. How does it come? Um, well, if you really are in love with someone else you may resent your spouse. Anyway, that's what he did. That's what he did. Whatever. So that's what he did. So then he wrote a letter to me and he said, you know, I just beat my wife again because she said she doesn't trust me. I had met with them recently, you know, and I was saying, you can never beat your wife again. You have to go to counseling and so forth. So he wrote me this letter and he said, what can I do? He said, of course I beat her again because she said that she didn't trust me. So I'm thinking, okay, you cheated on your wife only two years ago, and you've been beating her for two years, and then you're very surprised that she says that she doesn't trust you, and you're so offended that she says she doesn't trust you that you hit her again. So obviously what he was thinking was, well, I've been nice to my wife for the last three weeks, and I haven't cheated on her for two years, so she should just trust me. I have enough points. Hmm? That's another question. But looking from his point of view, so I hate to inform everybody here, but with Krishna, we are just like this husband. Our relationship with Krishna, when we are materialistic people, we are just like this husband. We are cheating. We are saying, yes, I want spiritual perfection. Oh, look at illusion over there. Isn't it interesting? Uh, yes, I want spiritual perfection. Oh, and that, oh, that. We're cheating, generally. And we act in ways to harm ourselves and other living beings, which is like beating Krishna, because they're all parts of Krishna. We're trying to get pleasure in illusion, and we're harming others. And then we say, haven't I racked up enough points, Krishna, that you should be pleased with me? Why, aren't, why don't, aren't you pleased with me? Why aren't you giving me enlightenment? Oh, forget it. So the end of his email was, I'm just leaving this marriage, forget it. So if we start thinking of, you know, yes, I've racked up points with Krishna, it, it's not a very good mentality for us. Just like anybody can understand, this husband needs to do two very simple things. Number one, he has to start treating his wife nicely. Yes? Correct? Consistently. He can't say, well, you got mad at me, so I hit you. What could I do? He has to be consistent. Number two, he has to tolerate her not trusting him until she decides to trust him. You understand? He cannot demand, I've been good for two weeks, now you must trust me. 
That's up to her when she decides to trust him again. It's not up to him. We can all understand this if we've been the victim, yeah? If somebody's cheated me, if somebody's hurt me, betrayed me, I get to decide when the relationship is restored, correct? Yes? They cannot demand. It's up to me. So it's really, it's up to Krishna when our relationship is restored. It's not up to me. No matter how many points I get. No matter how devoted I am, no matter how austere I am, uh, no matter how anything. It's not, it's not a mechanical process. I'm dealing with something personal. I'm dealing with relationships and personal and love. And so we, we should be very, very careful not to think, well, you know, I do this, I do this meditation, I take these vows, I give up everything in the world. I'm, uh, so, you know, I've earned my salvation, I've earned my enlightenment, or I've earned my Krishna Prema. Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> you know, then we're just like this man. It has to be, the, the mood really needs to be, I am the fool, I am the offender. I am the one who is going to illusion. I need to prove my sincerity and if I make a mistake, I pick myself up and I keep going and I wait patiently. It may be many lifetimes. It may be one moment and it may be hundreds of lifetimes. Whatever it is, that's, that's, that's up to Krishna. So it is now after nine. So I think we should stop here. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai.